0: Go ahead and be seated. Welcome to Christ Community Church this morning. It is great to be here on this Independence Day weekend, on this 4th of July weekend. My name is Brent Stanfield. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church, and uh, we are in our summer series on the Psalms, our summer in the Psalms, and it just happens to also be Independence Day weekend And so, I hope everybody had a great time celebrating the 4th of July, getting out there and barbecuing or spending some time out by the pool, watching fireworks and enjoying fellowship with family and celebrating... The freedoms that we have in this country, they are wonderful, aren't they? And in addition to that, you know, as we stand here, I know some of you, I'm going to be watching really closely as people checking their phones, because I know also the, the women's soccer team is, is playing in the final right now, and, and I expect that to be a Bible app on your phone that you're looking at. Uh, uh, and not the score. Um, but uh, w- how exciting is that as we in this patriotic season get to also uh, hopefully go home and, and watch uh, our national team uh, take the, the final trophy there uh, and, and uh, be excited about that together. So patriotism is in the air. And I figured that uh, since there is so much patriotism in the air, I would start this sermon with a little bit of a, of a patriotic story. Years ago, uh, Jessica, my wife, and I, uh, before we were married, while we were still dating, took a trip together to visit my parents in Washington, D.C. They lived in D.C. at the time, and and Jessica and I traveled from Nebraska, where we were going to school, out to see them in Washington, D.C. And I remember on that trip, we took a tour of the Smithsonian. And we went to the Smithsonian Museum, and, and there, right when you walk into the Smithsonian Museum, was an enormous display of a flag. And it was the flag. It was the star-spangled banner. And this thing is just enormous. It's huge. It's like one of those flags that you see flying at a car dealership on I-45. It's, it's large. It's big. It's big. And I've always been impressed with the story behind that flag, the story behind that flag. It's uh, August 24th, 1814, and the British have just taken Washington, D.C., and they've burned Washington, D.C. to the ground. And the fledgling nation of the United States of America is in trouble. And as Washington is captured, there is also a young doctor who is captured, Dr. William Baines, who was in charge of caring for some of the wounded prisoners, some of the wounded British prisoners. And the British captured him. They took him prisoner, and they took him on one of their ships. And President Buchanan dispatched a young lawyer from Washington, D.C., to secure his release, Francis Scott Key. And Mr. Key was successful. He traveled to the British fleet. He boarded their ships, armed with letters from some of the prisoners who, had, who all testified to how Mr. Baines had treated them very kindly while he was under their charge. And so the, the British generals and the admiral agreed to let him go, but they refused to let Ms. Dr. Baines and, and Mr. Key leave the ships Because while they were there, they had overheard the British battle plans to attack Baltimore. And so, Key and Dr. Baines were forced to stay aboard the ships as they sailed into Baltimore Harbor and began the attack on Fort McHenry. And for 25 straight hours, with Francis Scott Key aboard one of the British ships, he witnessed 25 straight hours of British naval bombardment of the fort. Over 1,800 huge shells, these these gigantic mortars fired from the HMS devastation. The HMS terror, the HMS meteor, and the HMS volcano were hurled at the fort, and they would arc high into the sky, and they would explode over the fort, raining shrapnel all over the fort. Causing devastation, starting fires, and uh, these mortar shells were called bombs because of the uh, the effect that they had. And Key watched from the ships this deadly barrage, and all throughout the day on September thirteenth, eighteen fourteen, the fort held. It didn't surrender. And as evening approached, Scott could see that flying from the mast inside the fort was a small little storm flag that the the fort would put out in the midst of of a heavy storm. And this bombardment certainly was that. It was a heavy storm facing the fort. And all throughout the night, as these bombs would be hurled at the fort, and as they would explode above the fort, the explosions would illuminate that this little flag... Was still flying. And in the morning, as the sun came up over the hot horizon, Key again looked out at Fort McHenry, now covered in smoke and fire. And for a moment, everyone aboard noticed that the little flag was no longer there. And so you can imagine the questions that immediately began coming to mind Did the fort surrender? Are the defenders giving up? Would Baltimore fall? But after a few moments, these questions were answered as a new, much larger flag was raised over the fort by its defenders, the Star-Spangled Banner. And Key, surrounded by his enemies, surrounded by the British soldiers, and overcome with emotion, took a letter, one of the letters that had been written by the British soldiers to free Dr. Baines, he took it out of his pocket, and he began scribbling a poem on the back of that letter. And the poem would become known at that time as The Defense of Fort McHenry. You probably know it. You've probably heard it. It goes like this. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight over the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. O say does that star-spangled banner yet wave are the land of the free and the home of the brave. It wouldn't be until the 20th century that that poem would become our national anthem when it was put to music. But what I intend to draw out from that is that what Key did in that moment is a type of psalm. As we're in our series on the psalms, what I want you to understand is that a psalm is an overflow of emotion about an experience. And that's what Key's poem is. He was overcome with emotion and he wrote a poem about it. He wanted to express how he felt in words. 204 years later's 204 years later, those words still evoke emotion in us as we sing them at baseball games, football games, hear them on the 4th of July. I always love that moment in the Olympics when the U.S. gets a gold medal and we see the, the flag raise up, and it's normally just the music that's played, but we all kind of hear the words in our mind as that music's played, and it evokes an emotional response for us. But that's what psalms are. And so as these writers in these psalms, as you read their words, what you have to understand is that they are writing these words out of an intense experience that they had with the power of God. That there's experience behind them, that there's substance to them that these writers were writing from a place where they had experienced God, His power, or maybe His absence. Maybe they were wondering, where is God in this moment? But there are intense experiences behind each one of these psalms. Today, as we look at Psalm 118, what you should know is that this is a celebratory psalm. In a small kind of way, in a a similar kind of way, you might call this psalm a kind of national anthem for Israel. It is a celebratory psalm that's perhaps written by David. We don't know for sure, but it describes someone who has been delivered by God from the rejection of his own people and from the enemies around him, and he is celebrating the faithfulness and the kindness and the mercy of God it starts this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. At this point, I just want to make a small comparison here. Do you realize that our Star Spangled Banner and this psalm start with the same Word, oh. It's a word that's so short we, we can miss it. Oh, what, what is that? I actually looked up the definition of oh, all right, as I was preparing for this sermon. What does that mean? What does it mean to, to say oh? And what it is, is just an expression of joy or maybe anguish or maybe fear, but it's an exclamation on what the person who utters it is about to say. Here it's joy. And he says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Here's three groups. Israel, God's people, his chosen nation, the house of Aaron, the priests, those who are specifically called to lead us in the worship of God. All those who fear the Lord, whether they come from national Israel or come from the nations around them, everyone who loves the Lord, who fears the Lord, let him say his steadfast love endures forever. It's this intense emotion that the author is calling us to to know and understand God's love. And why is the author experiencing God's love this way? Why is it? What is the evidence for God's goodness and for His love? It's there in verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me, and He set me free. The author of Psalm 118 has experienced the freedom of God. He's been set free. Freedom, true freedom, always comes from God. Only God can set us free. But here's what you need to know. Freedom is always accompanied by faith. Freedom is always accompanied by faith. Just after announcing what God has done for him, his freedom, this is what the author says, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side, as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The feeling and the fact of freedom is always accompanied by faith like that. Without faith, I will not fear. No king, no prince, no president, no dictator, No one can do anything to me that the Lord has not, that the Lord has not agreed can happen, that the Lord is not doing. The Lord is powerful. No one can harm me unless the Lord allows it. Nothing can happen to me. No one can overcome me if the Lord is with me. That is a statement of faith. And without faith, freedom is impossible. But he goes on, in verse 10 he says this, all nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. There's this image of this author, perhaps David again, being surrounded by the nations of this world. It is a Vision, so to speak, of, of the power of all the nations aimed, with their guns aimed, with their spears aimed, with their swords aimed at one tiny nation. And his response to the power of all the nations is, "I cut them off." To cut off. It means to separate, to end the relationship. You can think of that cutting off the power to your TV. These nations have no power over us. It is a declaration of independence. You'll probably recognize these words. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect for the, of the, to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. You know what that's from? The Declaration of Independence. And what is the declaration being made here? We are dependent on England and on the king. We dissolve those binds, those cords. We separate ourselves from the king. And we're about to explain why. That's what independence is, is to say, whatever it is out there that would claim power over me, I say, you have no power. That's independence. And God gives us independence from everything in this world. God gives us independence from everything in this world. In Christ and in God, because of God and His power, nothing in this world controls us. We are free from all kings. All governments, all people. We are free from demons and the princes and and powers that are spiritual. We are free from fear. We are free from sin. And we are free from death. We are free from everything in this world. But there is a great trap. There is a great trap, and here it is. God sets us free from everything in this world, and we can declare our independence from it. It has no power over us. But freedom is never independence from God. It is never independence from God. He says this in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. We sing about our God and what He has done. He is our strength. And he goes on and says this, The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It's not my right hand that does valiantly. I don't secure my freedom. It's the right hand of God that does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. I did not exalt myself. The right hand of the Lord has exalted me. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die. But I shall live. Why? And recount the deeds of the Lord. He has done it. Not me. The author of this psalm has a deep awareness of his dependence upon God. That is the basis for his freedom. Freedom. His independence from all other things depends entirely on God, and he knows it. The Lord has disciplined me severely. How many of you, when you think of freedom, think of discipline? I know when I was growing up, and our kids can probably attest to this at some level, that One of the things that I looked forward to most growing up was not being disciplined, (laughs) to be free of the restraints of my parents, to watch TV whenever I wanted, to eat whatever I wanted. And in my youth, I thought that's a good thing, right? Not realizing the good that my parents had in mind for me. The fact that the things that they were teaching me, the habits they were trying to form in me, were not against my freedom. They were for my freedom. They were good things that they were putting before me. Their discipline was for my freedom. In... The book of Philippians, Paul tells the Philippians, he says this in in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Again, it's one of those things where do you really think, I'm free and I'm, I'm so scared. I'm in fear, I'm in trembling. I'm trembling. I think it's important for us to realize and understand why we tremble in fear as we work out our faith. It's what Paul says next because it is God at work in you both to will and to do. When you realize that God is at work in you, moving you to good works, you shouldn't be trembling with fear thinking that God is going to harm me. You should be trembling with fear because God is near to you. What is the response of everybody who comes into contact with God in the Bible? It is is this immense fear that God is there. This trembling that God, this awe that God is there. And when we realize that it is God who is working us, working within us, to lead us to do good works, to do good, we ought to tremble with fear knowing that God is nearby, that He's with us as we work. He disciplines us. Freedom is closely associated with goodness. When the United States, when the young nation declared its independence from England, it was essentially saying to the king, we know better how to govern ourselves. We know what's good for us, not you. And we can make that statement in many different contexts. We may know better when it comes to what other people think, or what kings think, or what governments think. We may know better. It's possible, but we never know better than God. God is good. That was the declaration made at the beginning of this psalm. God is good. We never know better for Him. And so, freedom is always serving God. It's being disciplined by Him. Freedom is dependence on God. The psalmist continues, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. You see, after declaring salvation, that he has been saved by God, the psalmist asks for righteousness. Righteousness does not precede our salvation and our freedom. We are not righteous before we are saved, before we are set free. Righteousness always follows our salvation and our freedom. God alone is our salvation, not our works. God leads us through the gates of righteousness. When He frees us, He makes us righteous. And how does God accomplish that? He accomplishes it through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. His goodness is given to us as a gift. We don't do it. God gives us our righteousness. The psalmist says this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God uses what no one else suspects, for his work if you look throughout the bible Israel the smallest and weakest among the nations is the nation God picks to serve him David the smallest and the youngest of Jesse's sons is the king that God picks to serve him Jesus and in. Matthew 21 applies this verse to him. He quotes this verse. He is the cornerstone that the builders have rejected. He is the stone that God has made into the cornerstone. Jesus, born in a manger, rejected by men, killed by him, is the one that God, killed by men, is the one that God raises and seats in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. The one, the things that we reject as men and women are the things that God uses. The psalmist continues, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. It's marvelous in our eyes what God has done. There is an original context to this psalm. Whoever wrote this psalm had in mind a personal experience that he was having whoever wrote this psalm, and again, it may have been David, had experienced something, some great deliverance that God had given to him. And he saw the power of God in that experience. That's the original context of this psalm. But there is a higher context. There is a transcendent context in this psalm, and it's this, that God is its real author. And... In this psalm, it is undeniable that we see beyond this author, this, this human author's original context, and we see forward to Christ. And what Christ has done is marvelous in our eyes. Christ's resurrection is the day that the entire world was made for, it. that is the day that the Lord has made. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the day that the Lord had made. And we should rejoice in that day. You know, every year on the 4th of July, we celebrate Independence Day. It's a holiday, a holy day in American culture. Our culture. Once per year, one out of every 365 days. Sunday is the Lord's Day. 52 times a year, we celebrate the independence that we have in Christ. We should celebrate it even more. We should celebrate it every day. We should celebrate it with more passion than we would ever celebrate the the birth of our country. The freedom through Christ is so much better. And on Sunday, the day when Christ rose from the grave, we celebrate the independence that we have in Christ psalmist continues, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. Verse 26 here is again quoted by Jesus. It's not quoted by Jesus. It is quoted by him in Matthew 23. But it's also quoted by the crowd who greets Jesus on Palm Sunday. The crowds are there, and they are cheering the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, and they quote this verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you for the house of the Lord. They're expecting their king. And the psalmist here says, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. As Jesus himself says in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. God has sent His Son as the light to light the world. And so, what is the response? Here is the psalm closes up. It says this, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Prepare a sacrifice to celebrate God. Bring the sacrifices into the temple, the festal sacrifices, the ones where we celebrate the goodness of our God. And say this, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I will praise you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It is a celebration. It is a celebration. You know, earlier in the sermon, I referred to this psalm as the... uh, national anthem of Israel. It's actually the end of a series of psalms that were sung at almost every Jewish festival and on every significant occasion. And the psalms start with Psalm 113 and go all the way to Psalm 118, and they're called the Hillel, the Hillel. It's the root word in the word that you've probably heard, the Hallelujah. Praise be to God, and that's what these psalms do. Psalm 113 gives praise to God, the Creator, and talks about Him raising man up from the dust and giving children to women and and prospering man all over the face of the earth. Psalm 114 talks about God the rescuer. Give praise to God who rescues us. And it uh, refers us back to God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. Psalm 115 is one of my favorites, and it, it does this great job of distinguishing the God that we worship from all the other gods of all the other nations who are made out of stone and wood, and who have mouths but do not speak, who have ears but do not hear, who have feet but cannot walk, hands but cannot do anything. And it contrasts that picture of the idol with the God that we worship who can do all that He pleases. Psalm 116 praises God as our Redeemer. who redeems us from the grave. And Psalm 117 praises God, the faithful God. It's the shortest chapter in all the Bible. It's just two verses. And it praises God for His Faithfulness. And then Psalm 118, we praise God for his goodness and for his love. What's interesting about this is that Jesus, when he celebrated his final meal with his disciples in the upper room, almost certainly would have led them through the Hillel. These would have been the final songs that he sang with his disciples before his crucifixion. And I can guarantee you that as all the disciples were sitting there in that room that night, singing these songs, they were thinking back to experiences they did not have about what God had done in in Israel's past. They were thinking back. But the next day would be the cross. The next day, Christ would be crucified. The evil of that day would be profound. The darkness of that day would be the darkest it has ever been in human history. And you can imagine that coming off that night where they had been singing these songs with their lord that they would begin to ask themselves questions of like this who can stand against such evil I'm sure they had doubts is god really good Does he really love us? Is he my redeemer? When I die, will I live again? Who is my savior? I can imagine all of those thoughts going through their heads from Friday and on into Saturday. But on the third day, their questions were answered. It wasn't the rising of a flag over the ramparts of a fort. It was the rising of the Son of God from the grave. From that moment, the psalms that they had sung the night before took on a whole new meaning. Give thanks to the Lord. He is Good. His steadfast love does endure forever. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Christ who God has raised. Who can harm me? No one can harm me. Who can do anything to me? No one can do anything to me because the Lord is by my side and he will be by my side forevermore from that moment when they experienced the resurrection of Christ they were free free to give everything they had to the cause of Christ and that's exactly what you see in their lives is freedom the apostles lived out in freedom knowing that God is good and that his steadfast love endures forever Now, there are three kinds of freedom that I want to discuss in closing today. Three kinds of freedom freedom that I think are really important for us to understand and grasp in our culture. here they are, political freedom, personal freedom, and freedom of the will. Here's what you need to know. We tend to be obsessed in our age about politics, and they are not irrelevant. Do not interpret what I'm saying here today to say that politics are irrelevant and we should not be engaged at all in them, but we tend to be obsessed by them, not engaged. We must be convinced that our freedom does not come from earthly governments. Political freedom is found only in Christ. I am not here to argue at all whether the USA is the greatest nation on earth. I am free from all things in this earth, including governments, independent. The nations of this earth are of no account God their life is as significant as the life of a gnat the life of a mosquito they will pass away they are not everlasting they come and they go they rise and they fall they do not secure our rights or our freedoms only God does Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18. He says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We are citizens primarily of a heavenly kingdom. And all of our energy should be focused there. And at some level, politics in this earthly nation play a part in our how we view the world, but it is always first through our citizenship in heaven and only second as our citizens in this country or any other country. Political freedom is found only in Christ who has made us citizens to a heavenly kingdom. And we have to keep that clear in our heads. If we don't, we will become disorganized in the way that we operate in this world. But second is personal freedom. This culture is also obsessed with personal freedom. With forming our own identities, writing our own stories, You doing you? Be who you are? You might have heard it this way. I'm going to do what's best for me. You might even think that way. Most of us tend to think that way. I'm going to do what's best for me. Me, me, me. Our me culture. When I hear that, here's what I know. That person is not free. They are a slave. They just don't know it. They don't understand it. Personal freedom is only found in Christ. God has all, it's not about what you are going to do. It's not about the story that you are going to write. It's not about what's doing best for you. Here it is. God has already done Christ has already accomplished. It is finished. He has already accomplished, and He has already finished everything that is good for you. There's nothing you can do that's best for you that Christ has not already done. He's already secured your future. He's already given you everything that you need. That frees you up to serve Him to give your life to Him, and to serve one another, to serve each other. Our identity is not what we make of it. It is to be the people of God conformed to the image of Christ. That's our identity. And that is what freedom looks like. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.16. He says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's not freedom. But living as servants of God. Some translations define that word. It would have been better historical in that context as slaves to God. Freedom is serving God, that's what it is. And any other definition you find out there in the culture, and they tell you this is what freedom is, reject that. That's not what it is. It is service to God and God alone. And anyone who does not do that is not free. But finally, there's freedom of the will. This is one of the most frequent questions I get from Christians is freedom of the will. How does free will fit into God's sovereignty? Into his, how does it fit underneath God's government? This is one of the most frequent questions I, I get as a pastor, as an elder. And we are obsessed again with, it's my choice. I made the choice. I think this issue is probably the last bastion for Christians. The last desire, the last place where they hold on to a little bit of independence from God. That's the desire of the of the fallen human heart. And the freedom of the will is is that last readout that needs to be conquered by God. And here's what I have to say about that. Everyone agrees that you and I make choices. That is not in question. We do make choices. But that doesn't say anything about whether or not we're free. The fact that we make choices says nothing about whether or not we were free. What makes a choice free or not is whether God is moving in you. Whether the choices that you make are from God and His movement in your life or not, whether they're from the world. Nothing deserves the title, free will, that doesn't include that concept, that when God is moving in you, your will is free. When you're making choices with God in your thinking, you are free. And when God is not in your thinking, and you're making all kinds of choices, and they're what you want to do, you are not free if God is not in your thinking. The definition of the free will is a will that is good. It is a good will. A good will that is moved by God, who is good. Again, I take us back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. If God is at work in you, both to will and to do, you are free. Jesus says it this way, if you're not convinced by my arguments, here's how Jesus talks about his own will. Is anybody here going to argue that Jesus did not have a free will? I hope not. And here it is. Truly, truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the Father doing it. For whatever the Father does, the Son does also. He says this in John 5:30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6:38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's freedom. That's freedom. And that's what Christ does for us. Is he gives us that kind of freedom. The freedom to know what is good, God, and to follow what is good. That is all anybody who says, I want to be free, that is all that deep down in their heart they really want to do what's good, to do what's best for them. And the reality is only Christ can tell you that. Only God can tell you what's good for you. God sets us free by giving us faith in Him and developing a love for Him. And we will be fully free when our love endures forever like God's love does. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what is good. And so the issue, ladies and gentlemen, is this. When God produces faith in our hearts, what comes from faith in Christ and His work is a love for Christ. And when that love for Christ grows, so do our works. So does our goodwill. And we have a goodwill towards God and towards our fellow man. And we live on their behalf. We serve them. We serve each other. That's what freedom looks like. So here's what you should do. Grow in your understanding of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. I want you to feel it like the psalmist feels it. I want you to know, I want you to experience God like the psalmist experienced God. I want you to know what he has done for you. I want that faith to grow in your heart. Do everything you can to foster faith. Do everything you can To foster a love for God. And know this that as you grow and as you do, it is God at work in you. He has saved you, He is with you, and He has set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for a goodwill. First and foremost, Lord, I pray for myself that I will have a growing goodwill towards you, that my life will begin to to grow in such a way, that my love for you will grow in such a way that I want to serve you every day of my life so that I can be free. Free from all the things in this world that hold me back. Free from all the things in this world that keep me as a slave to them. That I would cut them off. Declare independence. But dependence on you. And I pray that for everyone here that their dependence will be on you and you alone for everything both in the world around us as we think about our politics and our personal lives as we think about what is it that I should do and in our innermost thoughts as we consider what is good and what we should choose may we always be in all things dependent upon you. In your name we pray. Amen.